Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It's Tuesday, October 21st. Welcome. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Radio Network, and uh, I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we're coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square here in Manhattan. So we've talked about the foreign buyers so often on this program and how they have been very present in the New York marketplace, buying apartments as investment properties. We haven't yet spoken about the foreign investor uh, who has been investing in commercial real estate and building with local developers. In 2013, foreign direct investment in the U.S. commercial real estate uh, market achieved record numbers and big headlines. Chinese companies alone were reported to have uh, invested $14 billion in the U.S. last year, which is more than double uh, their total in 2012. Foreign investment in U.S. real estate has been widely underreported, and we're going to talk today to my special guest, Jason Meister, and he'll walk us through an article that he wrote and help us understand from his unique perspective what is really happening. We'll get to that in a second, but first some uh, news headlines. Legendary fashion designer Oscar de la Renta, who spent half a century putting his society, high society in haute couture, has died. He was 82 years old. The man dressed every first lady since Jacqueline Kennedy. Laura Bush, first, uh, former first lady, said last night, quote, We will always remember him as the man who made women look and feel very beautiful. The cause of his death, announced by close family, friends, and industry colleagues, was not immediately clear. He was diagnosed with cancer in 2006, but recently said he was totally clean. Our thoughts are with his family today. Uh, An Upper West Side Catholic school is the latest nonprofit to be sold. Tamark and Company bought the six-story building at 553-559 West End Avenue at the corner of 87th Street from the Archdiocese of New York for $50 million dollars. Built in 1919, the limestone and brick building housed the St. Agnes Boys High School from 1990 until last year. Building construction costs finally broke $1,000 per foot in New York City. The skyrocketing price of land has been on the mind of every developer and investment sales broker in New York for the last few years. What used to cost $400 to $650 per foot to build high-end condo projects is now close to or over $1,000 a foot. This is due to the high cost of purchasing the land that these buildings are sitting on top of. We have about $30 billion in construction this year, making this the largest construction value that we have had since 2007. Downtown Los Angeles, once disdained by by Wall Street as a weak collection of office buildings with no pizzazz, is drawing newfound fascination from New York firms, many of which are sinking money into the Southland's resurging commercial district. L.A. County has seen a 23% increase in the dollar volume of investment from New York this year compared to 2013. New York investment in the county has surpassed $4.4 billion since the beginning of 2012 when local real estate experts noticed a surge in interest from New Yorkers. Downtown L.A. reminds New York investors of what their neighborhoods looked like before redevelopment swept through Manhattan and into the other boroughs. Firms from New York show up and see the potential that they used to see in Hell's Kitchen, for example, a decade ago and look to see what happened uh, in places like Tribeca and the High Line. Other big investors in L.A. are from China or Korea. All right. Jason Meister has been a guest here before. He is vice president of Avazin Young, a very successful commercial firm in Manhattan. His specialty is that of investment sales. 
Good morning, Jason, and welcome back to the show. Good morning, Vince, and thanks for having me. No problem. So we want to talk about this article that you wrote. And as I said earlier in the beginning, in 2013, foreign direct investment in U.S. commercial real estate achieved record numbers and big headlines. But a lot of this stuff has been underreported. So as you reported, analytics look primarily at detransfers and don't always see the foreign investment because they partner with domestic developers. So can you help us understand what that really means or, or for our listening audience? Sure. So Vince, you know, I looked back at the the analytics and I saw that in 2013 we had record-breaking numbers of foreign investors. So when I saw that, I started to really peel the onion a little bit more and try to understand where those numbers were coming from. So I looked to one of the bigger analytic companies that calculate these numbers, which was Real Capital Analytics, and I called them and I said – how are you looking at, at the foreign investment? Are you actually looking at the deed? How are you calculating all this money that's coming into the U.S.? And they said that what they do is they basically look at the deed and the transfer. And if the transfer is an overseas entity, such as uh, I know many of your, your listeners have heard of, of Fosun Group, let's say, in, in the Chinese group company that bought uh, Chase Manhattan Plaza for $725 million, that would be sort of the, the perfect uh, example of a ch- Chinese company firm coming into New York City and purchasing a major office asset. But what they don't calculate into the foreign investment are when you have domestic investors, local New York real estate players or Los Angeles real estate players or Miami real estate players that we all know that brokers deal with, developers and investors, when they actually have uh, overseas money that that is partnering with them. So if you see for example, uh, Thor Equities on the deed transfer, you, you assume that Thor Equities bought it, which they did. But what you don't see is the foreign money that's behind them. And so we, that's why what I'm saying is it's hard to calculate actually how much money is coming into the U.S. right now. So it's really kind of underreported. I mean it's obviously on the, on the residential side when you, know, you have foreign investors coming in to buy an apartment or a block of apartments. You can pretty much, I think – figure out, you know, where the money is coming from or who these buy. It's visible, exactly. So in this particular case on the commercial side with these large buildings in New York, a lot of this is going, as you say, underreported. Is there is there a way at all that we can, you know, kind of peel this back and figure out where some of this money is coming from? I mean, it seems to me like it's been it hides under the domestic big name you know, developers or construction companies. Right. Maybe for particular reasons, maybe not. I don't know. Well, for sure they want to park their money. There's a lot of overseas turmoil right now um, just around the world. Um, so they've, they've figured that it's a great place to park their money. And they also – there's a reason why they like to uh, partner with domestic investors. They can mitigate many in many instances real estate taxes. They can also leverage the domestic investors' uh, expertise. I mean – New York City, for example, is a very competitive real estate market, as you know very well. And when a Chinese group comes into the U.S. or a Russian group or whatever uh, country you want to choose and they come into this market and you know they go and try to bid on a property uh, that a commercial real estate broker is handling as a disposition, you know, if you don't know that entity, you're going to be a little bit uncertain as to where their money is coming from, whether they can execute – but if you have a domestic player that you've, you've seen execute many, many times before, it, it makes you feel much more comfortable in getting into a transaction with that company. And so the overseas investors find it very difficult to do it on their own. 
And so they, they figure, you know, I might as well partner up with the people that know what they're doing. So the benefit to the foreign investor working with a domestic partner, especially here in New York City, is because it's easier for the Chinese or the Russians or the Brazilians or wherever the, the, the funds are coming from uh, to work in a marketplace, fair to say, that they don't really know well, uh, that they don't really understand. Correct. But they know that they can park their money here and um, and make a profit. And in, and in many instances, if they're not buying a controlling interest, they don't have to pay the same kind of taxes. So they, they like to invest alongside so that they're not in the full control. All right. Explain to us a little bit about the controlling interest. That's a good point. So what what does that mean for, for our listeners if they don't buy a controlling interest in a, in a, in a project? They're going to be able to avoid many of the real estate taxes that you would – actually get applied to you if you owned a controlling interest. Um, And then for the U.S. operators um, partnering with foreign investors, there's a lot of positives for them as well. Greater access to capital, which is a lower cost to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also the ability to move quickly in a market where timing is often uh, the deciding factor in closing a deal. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why both parties find it a unique uh, partnership. Yeah, from a developer perspective here in the U.S., for example, and again, let's use New York as an example. I can certainly understand the infusion of cash from a foreign, you know, uh, person or a foreign company. But let me ask you something because you do you do a lot of commercial stuff and you deal with a lot of these bigger transactions. How you know how do these these companies work together? First of all, different philosophies, different you know thoughts on on building, different everything you know cultures. How do they work together? When the investment money is brought into the U.S., into New York City, for example, and a building project starts, you know, who I understand controlling interest and not, but what, how do the cultures work it's, together? It's actually an interesting question. Um, and I've been doing a lot of stuff with the Chinese specifically, so I'm going to speak a little bit to that um, just because I have had my own personal experiences with that. I actually have a partner um, who's a very good close friend of mine who speaks fluent Mandarin and travels to China once or twice a month. Um, And so I've been very uh, involved with the Chinese. The Chinese are an interesting group. I mean, they culturally, they don't, unlike New Yorkers, they are not just, they don't want to go straight to the business. They want to create a relationship and you really need to take time with them, um, get to know them. They need to feel a trust. It's, it's a lot different than New York where, where the New York people just, they just want to go get a deal and get it done and then start the relationship. And I've been many meetings before where the Chinese want to have tea and get to know a developer in New York before they invest hundreds of millions of dollars with them. And the developer says, I got to go. I got to go make another deal. That's exactly what I wanted to get to because, you know, from a cultural perspective, and you're absolutely right on with that, you know, we're, we're all about the deals here, whether it's on LR levels as the brokers putting these deals together or the big developer who has, you know, the wherewithal to, to, to c- construct these things. But you deal with these cultural differences. And the reason I ask is because obviously they successfully work out, but how? I mean, it's got to be like, I don't have time to go to tea. I got to go to my next meeting because I got something that's, you know, whatever. Right. I think to a, to a large extent, what's happened is you have these um, overseas Chinese um, allocators or you want to call them brokers. You can call them brokers, but they're basically allocators. So they set up offices here in the U.S. They speak English perfectly. They understand our our culture and they basically bridge the gap. So gotcha. if they create the relationship here in, in New York or in LA or in Miami, and then 
they have their counterparts in China. And because they're here and they're, they know the market, they know it cold, they're smart, they, they study the comps just like we do, and they can, they can control the Chinese money that's coming out of China and they bridge the relationship gap. So it's really having basically a, a foothold here in the US and that's what's happened. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, scenario because I think back to the days, you know, when I was in corporate America, and this goes back a while, and Sony Corporation used to be right next door to IBM where I used to work on 57th and Madison Avenue at the time. And I remember friends of mine who used to work in that company, and they would always complain to me about, you know, very big company, very successful company, Sony Music, Sony Pictures, Sony, you know, electronics, whatever. But the overriding, overriding feeling always about the company was that, the culture within was so different because they were foreign and right. they weren't domestic. And, you know, the corporate, you know, feel here was completely different from the corporate feel there. So it made it a little difficult, more difficult to get through a day, so to speak. But in the development side, um, it's not easier. And there are probably a lot more complications because you're talking about lots more hundreds of millions of dollars. But we'll get to that in a second. got to take a break. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back here with Jason Meister, Vice President of Avazon Young, and we're talking about the commercial foreign investors. So my question is, what are the big U.S. development companies doing to capture the foreign investors overseas? How are they or what is their plan generally to go out uh, to get this business? And where, where are some of the, most of these investors coming from? I mean, you mentioned China before. Is that the, the, the real pocket of investors at the moment? Sure. I mean, I think that, that China is one of the bigger uh, prolific uh, groups that are investing right now. But you also have a lot of Russian. You have um, you have people from Europe, you have people from the, a lot of from the Middle East. Um, mostly, you know, when you look at sort of the map of the world, you're seeing a lot of money coming from places where there is some turmoil. China has a major credit crisis right now and a housing bubble. So they see where the market is headed and smart investors are, uh, you know, moving their money here. But they're also moving money here in a lot of ways because 
they um, they want to move their families here and 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 uh, have their children go to colleges and 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 have an education here in the U.S. And so they send the wife over with their children. Um, but you know that's why you're seeing a lot of residential developers, um, you know, basically selling on plans on spec in China. Um, but you're seeing we're seeing stuff from Russia. We're seeing stuff from Ukraine. Obviously, you're you know places where there's a lot of turmoil. People are parking their money. It's a safe haven. It's a it's a place to park their money that they know that for example that the the government isn't going to be able to take their property that we have good property rights here and 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 so that's what you're seeing. Is that a grave concern though? Because I've been I'm hearing a lot about that as well. Um, you know that it, it's a safer bet to put your money here, park your money here in the U.S. because the government can take it away from you in some of these foreign lands, China being one of them. Um, so I, I agree with that. But let me ask you something. You mentioned housing bubble in China. What what is at the root of that? I mean, you know, for I'm actually a little surprised to hear that. But right. So this has been going on for a very very long time. I you know, there's some economists that are now talking about a bubble that's going to possibly burst. They've been saying it for ten years. I actually, you know, I, I, I see what's going on and I think what's happened is you've had extreme overdevelopment. You have ghost cities. Um, people are not even occupying the properties. Uh, but the good news for the Chinese is that the government can cook the books there. So, you know, they can sort of fudge those numbers, unlike here in the U.S., um, which has pretty so, somewhat saved them. But look, at the end of the day, it's something I've been keeping my eye on. Um, a lot of people talk about what, what they call a black swan event something that happens suddenly overnight. Uh. Um, so it's it's something that I think a lot of very careful investors in the U.S. are looking at. I mean, it's something that we need to watch, especially with them coming over here with a lot of money. What 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 about Dubai? Because it seems to me, you know, if there's going to be a housing bubble anywhere or any kind of a, a change, uh, Dubai, because of the, its nature and how it started, you know, X amount of years ago and where it is today fairly successfully – what what's happening in that marketplace? Sure, I mean that's another example similar to China. S- similar where you have a lot of overdevelopment. So you know when you have overdevelopment, it's real estate is simple supply demand. I don't care where you are in the world, but if the supply if the demand isn't meeting the supply, you're going to have overdevelopment, and therefore prices are going to have to come down. And um, and so what you're seeing is a, is that is happening in China right now. And uh, so they're coming here and investing um, and, it, you know, again, they want to park their money in a safe place and the U.S. is really the safest place in the world. Are there any uh, – is there any analysis rather um, on where these foreign investors are putting the money? Is it more into the commercial side of stuff, into developments, into big condo buildings, into big, you know, corporate buildings? Sure. Or is it um, uh, the residential because I, as we said earlier, it's easier to – map or figure out on the residential side where the money is coming from. But who, where sure. is it being spent most, on sure. the commercial side or on the residential side? So I think it's, you know, right now at this moment in time, I'm seeing more in the residential development. Um, they love the idea that the overseas groups, that they could sell like 20%, 15% of the project to end users, right, in their home country. Mm-hmm. So um, you're seeing a lot of, uh, for example, the Chinese again, or Canadians or, you know, you know, many different groups, but you're seeing a lot of them investing with residential developers or developing themselves. For example, there's a property right now um, on Kent Avenue in, in South Williamsburg. Uh, I believe it's the Ustin. Um, they're, selling, they're selling on spec um, in China. 
And, you know, I think that they like that. The other thing they do like is office buildings where they have some vacancy where they can potentially plant themselves and have a headquarters here in New York. Um, but, you know, I'm, again, I'm seeing a lot of residential development from the, from the overseas groups. Uh-huh. The, other, the other thing, Vin, sorry, in, with regards to the residential, there's something called the EB-5 program. Um, it's basically where you can secure capital from foreign investors. It was created in 1990. Um, and basically, it's a way for foreign investors to get a green card. Um, in exchange for providing at least a minimum of half a million dollars, $500,000 in financing for certain qualified projects. And it's not just real estate, but you're seeing a lot more use of the EB-5 program. That's interesting because I had heard a little bit about that. So when you say it's not just about um, real estate, what else else can you do to qualify for that? Any commercial investment. Um, Okay. But you're seeing, you know, it's it's what I call a visa, visa, a visa, visa financing. So basically right. they're, you know, they're, they're, it's a way for them to get green cards. So, and there's these basically regional centers. Um, I'm working on something in Las Vegas right now um, with an overseas group uh, from China. And there's, they're looking at potentially this regional center where they could uh, deploy capital. So it's a, it's a nice vehicle um, and there's a lot of demand for the program and so I think it's you know it's a low cost way to fill out your your capital stack as a developer. You you say in your article that foreign investors begin with different return expectations from those of domestic real estate investment trusts, and we talked a little bit about that. So tell us tell us what the expectation is as far as short term or long term uh, investment in U.S. markets when they come to market, whether we go get them or they come and find us. What is their real expectation? Do they think that what they're going to be investing is going to be a short term? Uh, project or do they really look at it at the for the long term? Long I, haul? Yeah, I think they're looking at it for the long term. I think that um, to some degree, what I'm talking about there is, you know, they don't have this. They have value mm-hmm. not just in a return. They have value in parking money, like mm-hmm. we've been talking. It's a it's a it's a theme throughout that you know. So if they can move their money here, like almost as if it was a Swiss bank account they are protecting themselves and that's a value to them. So domestic investors don't have that. They they are looking for a return. And I'm not saying that the overseas groups are not looking for a return, but it's not the only thing they're looking for. They're looking for um, you know, a place, a safe haven where they can uh, invest their money and, and keep it safe. You say that making a current return is sometimes a secondary goal. So Correct. it's not necessarily the, the primary right. reason that they're getting involved yeah, and, in the and, project. And they definitely want returns. I mean, no one, no one wants to invest in something they're not going to make money on. But again, it, it, it's in many instances a secondary goal. Right. Um, the, the Canadians, I was reading something recently where the Canadians, I don't know much about that marketplace when it comes to investing in you know, U.S. Uh, marketplaces where, you know, typically, I mean, I remember when I was young and we used to vacation in Florida, for example, you know, we used to be filled with people from Canada. It seemed to be the place to go. Where are the Canadians uh, investing? In what markets? Is it New York? Is it Florida? Is it out west? I mean, where do they primarily focus their investment dollars, you know, under the commercial uh, scenario? Sure. So Canada is is one of the largest, um, and obviously for their close proximity, they're a major trade partner, just like Mexico. But you're seeing it, it really all over the U.S. But obviously the big markets, but in outside of you know the larger markets like New York City, um, Los Angeles, Miami, uh, Boston. Washington. Oh, they are in L.A. Yep. Okay. You're also seeing in Arizona, 
um, Las Vegas. So you're seeing it sort of spread spread across. They they fully understand the markets here, and they and they're very much bullish on the in the U.S. So. And do they have the same reason to invest? In, in, in bigger projects here for the same economic reasons or governmental reasons that the Chinese, for example, or the Russians or the, the Brazilians? A little different. I think they're, you know, they're, they're, they've always been a, an invest, a major investor in the U.S. They get the U.S. They're close to the U.S. And um, so I, I think it's not as much from a safe haven perspective. Mm-hmm. And they're also very much in our housing market. Um, you know, people, I know a lot of Canadians that have home, second homes here in the U.S., Let's talk about Mexico for a little bit. Um, what what is that uh, what is that country doing by way of you know foreign investing? A border border country to us, of course, uh, to our south. Are they they investing in New York or in in the U.S. or sure. do they kind of leave it domestically, locally in their own country? No, I think they're they're also spreading their 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 money around into the U.S. and 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 their tentacles into the U.S. and especially in the New York market. I've seen quite a bit of that. Okay. So as far as you know, getting back to you know, get you know what we started talking about here with the underreporting of you know these major multi hundreds of millions of dollars on investing. Do you see at some point that there will be a better way for uh, us to report the actual you know investors or the the break it down to where we know who's doing what and where and to whom, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, big it, big big, you know, whatever, but is it possible? It's a, it's a great question. I, you know, that's what sort of motivated me on the article. Cause when you read these headlines every day about how much money is coming, <clears throat> coming in overseas, it's, it's, it's staggering. Mm-hmm. And then you say to yourself, but that's not even the full extent of it. It's much, much, much larger. So I wanted to try to get a little sense of that. And really without the only way you can figure out is being on the street, knowing the deals Knowing the investors, knowing the developers that are tapping into these overseas groups and putting these deals together, there's no other way or way of tracking it. So, you know, when you see Donald Trump on a a, G, a D transfer, you don't know how, who, where that money's coming from, and and that's the point of the article is that there's just so much overseas capital right now, and you see a lot of overseas, even you know, companies. Um, equity companies and and corporations are sending executives overseas to woo these overseas investors. Now, so so for example, Donald Trump would be one of these you know mega inv- uh, developers here in the U.S. Is he one of these guys who is out there looking for foreign money wherever he can find it? Sure, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean he's I, always into a lot I, of things. He's but. a big name, so I use him as an example. I right. wouldn't consider him you know the most active real estate developer in the U.S. I think he's definitely more into the licensing, but. Um, but you know that would just be an example of of a developer where people know it's a name brand and there's a lot of overseas capital that these developers are using. Gotcha. Well, a very very good article um, written. But let's for we have a couple of minutes left. Let's catch up on um, on your happenings. We took we had you on the show many months ago as a new young rising star, which is kind of interesting to me because I think you've gone so far past that in the New York marketplace from a residential and a, and a commercial perspective. So, you know, and uh, I follow your activities, you know, as as somebody who knows you well now. But so, tell us about your 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 gig at Fox News. I mean, you you do a lot of reporting on Fox News. You do a lot of um, article writing. Uh, you're a new dad. You've got lots going on. How do you keep up with all of it, Jason? And really, what's what's next, Vince? I don't know how you juggle it all <laughs> with the radio show and a, a successful real estate practice. But no, but I thank you. But um, you know, I study the market. It's really about <clears throat> you know my clients. 
and adding value to them. And if I'm staying on top of the market and I know what's going on and, and reading all the trends and studying the numbers and the data, it helps me add value to the client. And that's really the end of the day, what I'm doing. And so, you know, I've been going on um, some of the news. Uh, I do Wall Street Journal as well, mm-hmm. live, a digital network. And, you know, they call on me to understand, you know, and help them navigate through the housing market as well as the commercial real estate market. And they really are very um, uh, parallel. And you have to understand the housing market in order to understand the commercial real estate market. Um, they go hand in hand. Um, and if you understand the, the data and the economic trends that are going on, it's much better for you to service clients. Do you have a preference in everything that you do on a day, day-to-day basis, television, radio, writing, you know, commercial real estate brokering, big deals? Do you have a preference for one or do you just kind of like everything at the moment? I love doing everything. Um, you know, I think that uh, I love writing a lot. Um, so I'm doing more of that. Um, but trying to break down what's going on in the world, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a lot of investment. Um, you know, last, just last week, we had a pretty rough ride. Um, the stock market, everyone knows, dropped quite a bit. Mm. The uh, 10-year treasury went below 2% uh, for the first time in many, many, many months. Um, and there was a lot of stuff going on out of Europe. So you know, trying to navigate through all that is helpful. And I think that um, a lot of people are talking about the market being very frothy right now, um, especially in your world, the residential world. There's a lot of 3,000 plus a square foot um, you know, uh, condos coming on the market. So trying to understand where all that money's coming from, how deep that market is, it's something that I find very intriguing and interesting and something that, you know, if I'm selling a development site um, in, in a hot area in Manhattan, I want to understand, you know, if they're coming to market two years from today, how many units are coming online? What's, where is the market headed? Um, where's, you know, where, uh, how, how many foreign buyers are, there, are, are out there? You know, that's sort of the stuff that sort of pushes me to read, to write, and to go on TV and radio. Okay, so the article is Foreign Investment in U.S. Real Estate Widely Underreported. My guest is Jason Meister, and we'll be back after these messages. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vince. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we're going to be talking to my panel, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential and Niall Lundgren from Dalian Real Estate. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Doing all right. We're all good. Okay, it's getting, cold. So it's getting cold in New York. It's getting cold in New York. You know what, though? It's, I think it's a welcome change. It's a, I, I'm a seasonal kind of guy, and I really like the difference uh, every time the season changes. And then, of course, as you get a few weeks into cold weather, then you start crabbing about, why isn't it warm again? But right. we're all used to that. Yep. And anyway, Jason <laughs> is going to stick around with us for a little while, too. We're going to talk a little bit today about roadblocks to clinching an apartment sale and how to get around them. And we've, you know, we've kind of danced around all these roadblocks as the weeks have gone by here. But some important things to talk about also What's included in a sale and what's not? And how many times do you arrive at a closing table? And it just happened to me last week when there's an episode over a chandelier or a dishwasher or a light bulb or whatever. It's just kind of crazy. What is the difference between pre-war, post-war, and new construction? I mean, listen, there are differences. We've touched on some of them as we've gone through the uh, through the show. But, you know, there are buyers out there for each and every one of these types of buildings and we're going to talk a little bit about those. And also, what do you need to know before you buy in a post-war building? Again, you know, there are, there are lots of differences in the different types of uh, architectures and buildings out there. So we're going to, you know, peel apart a little bit about the post-war or as much as time allows today. So now that you've found an apartment that you can call your own, had your offer accepted, maybe even won a bidding war, and gotten approval from the board, can you call yourself a homeowner? Well, unfortunately, not quite yet. You still have to get to the closing table. And that's where, you know, things can happen. So guys, you know, for the listening audience who's not necessarily familiar with how we transact deals in New York City, can you explain the process by which we purchase an apartment and the steps we go through to get to closing? I mean, you know, we think that it's not terribly complicated, but when you look at Every other marketplace in the U.S., and we'll keep it, you know, national for for this conversation. We probably are the most complicated real estate, you know, transaction anywhere. So, can you explain to uh, to our listeners what this really entails? Because it's important. I think, I think maybe Deborah and I can can share on this. We're actually working <laughs> on a, uh, on a deal together right now. Um, yeah. So generally, what happens is once you know the buyer decides that they that they want to submit a bid for the apartment. Um, would the, the buyer's agent or the buyer's broker will then submit an offer um, to the seller's agent. In this case, I submitted an offer to Deborah, and then there was a, a bit of a negotiation that went back and forth in terms of, um, you know, what would be included in the apartment. I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And then, mm-hmm. you know, obviously what the deal price was and what the terms were. In this case, the deal that we're working on is, is all cash. Um, so I don't know if Deborah, you want to pick up from here. Where, where what happens next? But we're kind of in the thick of things right now. Yeah. Well, what was very interesting in this deal is there were a few offers. Looking at all the offers, I presented them all to my seller. I looked at how they all compared financially, if they were a good fit for the building, and if they were financing or not. And not because I knew Niall and I trusted him but because his client also seemed to be the best person for the building, did my uh, seller choose him. While we were going to contract, at this point, his attorney, Niall's client's attorney, is doing due diligence on the building. He is making an appointment with the managing agent to read the minutes, to see what's going on in the building, to see if there's any big assessments coming up, 
there actually is an assessment in this building for the next five years. And they were a little concerned, but it's to replace the elevators, which is something that needs to be done, and that's great. It's a pre-war building. They're going to have new elevators. So they looked at that. At the same time, the two attorneys are negotiating the terms of the contract. Now, some of the things in the contract, not necessarily this one, but in others, are, are you including all the chandeliers? Are you including the air conditioners? If you have window air conditioners, this is a big deal because many people assume they're included. Others assume they're not. So this has to be put in the contract to avoid problems, as you mentioned, Vince, at the closing table. Right. And so as we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, when you're going through the negotiation stage of these transactions, you talk about, and it's easy to forget, you know, both sides, buyers, rep, you know, sellers, rep, it, it, it makes every bit of sense to, to peel apart everything that's in that apartment that's fixed to the walls or not, window wear conditioner or not, because it will always come up. Deborah, quick question to you, though, is uh, with the deal here with Niall, is this a co-op or is this a condo? This is a co-op. Okay. So there was more negotiation, more uh, due diligence his attorney had to do, and we're finishing up a very extensive board package now, which is not normal for most co-ops. This one is just Quirky, shall we say, Niall? Yeah, it's quirky. The the amount of oddball details that you have to kind of go through, and it's it's a it, as a broker, it's very important to work very closely with your buyer and educate them from the second that you meet them about how intricate co-ops can be. And I always say it's like a financial colonoscopy, meaning it's very <laughs> very invasive. Um, on your on all of your finances, and you know there are there are questions that you know that that we need to have answered for the co-op. For example, my buyer had his identity stolen, so he's like, I don't want to give account numbers. So then I have to go back to him and say, Look, like I told you day one, this is very invasive. I know I know a lot of this will make you feel uncomfortable, but this is what we have to do in order to, you know, close successfully on a co-op. And we're literally putting together almost every piece of financial information that my uh, my buyer has, including tax returns and bank statements, et cetera. So it, it is very invasive, and it's a, it's a long and drawn-out process. After you get the whole package together, which can be hundreds of pages, then you have a number of copies that you have to make. So in this case, it's one copy, um, plus five additional copies. So there's a total of six uh, packages that you have to submit, which is, which is that a lot of trees are being killed when you're putting together a call package like that. Yeah, the, 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 this, is, this is one of the drawbacks to doing um, any transaction in New York because even condos today you have to do a very extensive uh, board or purchase application package, whatever. But let, let's, let's, skip, let's skip to the closing for a second because I think, you know, when we talk about transactions in this town, first of all, we use attorneys here in New York City when, you know, Los Angeles and Miami and whatever, they don't, they don't use attorneys. The brokers themselves, the agents themselves actually do the contract in the negotiations and uh, you, you see it when you watch you know, these t- television programs. So we are kind of unique in this town where we use attorneys. And so that complicates uh, matters because it adds one more step. So 
you know, basically, you know, who are the players at the table here, you know, in, in, in a closing and, and how this differs from other marketplaces? For example, a lawyer, you know, as I just said before, really um, uh, is in place here in New York, but no place else. But they can be problematic also. Sometimes buyers choose lawyers who are not real estate attorneys, so therefore you've, they've got to go through a learning process potentially. You can have a disastrous walkthrough. You can have a backup at the bank and you're sitting at a closing table and the loan is not funded, meaning you know they've, they've been approved. We're at the closing table. Everything is happening, but the banks don't fund these loans and issue the, the clearance on the checks to give to the seller or the whatever until the very last minute. And I was just at a closing last week, an hour and 15 minutes waiting for the – everything was done at the closing, waiting for the loan to be funded. And then the stock certificate goes MIA, so the co-op – um, the co-op managing agent has to reissue another uh, stock certificate. So, you know, who are the players at these tables and what, you know, can go wrong to derail a, a smooth, what you think should be a very smooth closing, right? I think as Niall has mentioned over and over every week on this show, you have to have your team together. And he is so right. And I have to tell a very quick story, which unfortunately is all too common in New York real estate. My son was buying a co-op. And he wanted his father, who was an excellent attorney, but not a real estate attorney, to represent him. I begged, I pleaded, I said, please at least let me see the contract. There's so many moving parts, and I I knew the building, and I knew there could be problems. Everyone refused. The entire time he owned, my son owned the co-op, he had nothing but problems because due diligence was not done, and... There were things in the contract that any real estate lawyer would never have let go through. It doesn't matter if it's your father, your godfather, your aunt, your sister. If they're not a real estate attorney who knows Manhattan to protect yourself, it is very important to have one. I agree with that. That's, that's, I think, the most important part. Um, if you are working on the financing side and you are looking to get financing, obviously working with a, with a solid bank or a mortgage broker is, is also very important. And when you, when Vince is asking about who shows up to the closing, it's generally the bank and the bank, you know, can leave you stranded for a little while while they're trying to finalize the funds. There's also the, the bank's attorney that, um, that comes. And I've been in situations where the bank's attorney has um, just not even shown up or, or extended the because they have a lot of closings and that'll cause delays when you're in the when you're in the when you're in the thick of things. So um, not only is the lawyer uh, very important, but the but the, the the bank and the bank's attorney at the closing as well. All right, guys, we're going to take a break. On the other side of that break, we're going to talk about exactly what is included and what is not included when you're buying an apartment and what has been negotiated negotiated or not. Uh, You are listening to uh, Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. We're coming right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential and Niall Longrim from Dalian Real Estate. And we're talking about some of the things that can and do go wrong when we're trying to close a transaction. Oftentimes, you know, buyers out there are so excited when they had an accepted offer. They have a contract sign. I'm a homeowner. I'm buying a house. Well, true. However, it's not really yours until you complete the transaction, and that is at the closing table. And as we spoke about, there are many players who show up at the closing table, attorneys, bank attorneys, uh, the the bank itself, the managing agent, the brokers, the buyer, the seller. So it's a full house, full room, lots going on and a lot of paperwork. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what is included and what's not when you buy a New York City apartment because this gets very tricky. You know, generally speaking, when you buy an apartment, the seller moves their stuff out and the buyers, you know, literally move their stuff in. Most times the definition of stuff is obvious, including furniture, clothes, books, etc., but not always. Is the air conditioner in the window, as Deborah alluded to earlier today, included in the deal or the flat screen television that's mounted to the walls or the $3,000 chandelier in the foyer? The answer is maybe or maybe not. It's negotiable. You need to remember to negotiate it up front and put it in the contract because guess what, guys? If it's not in the contract and it's not negotiated as part of the deal, you ain't getting it. And that's very simple. There's always room for some gray area producing reasonable disagreement and confusion among buyers and sellers. Here are a few of the most common negotiated exclusions and clarifications. Okay, chandeliers and lighting fixtures such as sconces. What are sconces? You know, they're lighting fixtures attached to the wall. You know, guys, we, we touched on this just a little bit in the last segment, but, you know, how do we get around, you know, what stays and what goes in these negotiations? Because even when you identify up front, I need to t- find out about the chandelier or the sconce or the lamp, someone is always going to say no or someone's going to say, but I want it. What do we do? I think the most important thing is to preemptively think about this going into the purchase. One of the real estate attorneys that I work closely with, the, the main question that he always asks is, who gets it? That's the, that's the question. Right. Who gets it? Who gets it? And if we are talking about anything in the apartment, we want to identify it um, beforehand. And then that's a private law, and there's a negotiation there between the buyer and the seller, and you have to come to terms on that. I've negotiated everything from marble tables to mirrors to um, window fixtures and sconces. 
so it's it's very important to getting that in the in the contract early uh, um, beforehand. Early in my career, um, I wasn't as you know adapt as I am now, and I had a situation where there was um, lighting, uh, excuse me, uh, window fixtures that were automatic with a remote control, and the buyer had thought that they were coming with. And when we did the walkthrough. Um, they were actually taken down, meaning they were going to be taken, like the, the, the seller was going to bring them with them to the new place. Yeah. And my buyer freaked out because we hadn't identified that prior. He just assumed, and you know, so did I. It was actually my first sales deal that I ever did a number of years ago. And that caused a big, a big problem right at the closing. And my buyer almost walked away from the deal. And uh, we were able to negotiate it between the lawyers um, last minute at the closing table. But, you know, that was because we didn't identify it, who gets what beforehand and put it in the contract that potentially, you know, put the deal at risk. So it's very important to identify who gets it. No, you're, you're 1000% correct. And here's one of the yeah. big differences that people out in the, you know, the rest of the country don't understand. You know, when you're buying a house, okay, a regular house, in, in anywhere else but New York City, you have an inspection period and you go through everything and you pretty much document, you know, the inside, the outside, the roof, the mechanicals, the boiler. But when you're buying an apartment in New York City, you have one shot at doing what we call a walkthrough, and that's usually the morning of the closing. There aren't inspections. You don't inspect the boiler down in the basement. You don't go up onto the rooftop. You don't look at anything really close enough. So when you when you when you you know bring a buyer to the table and you, we get an accepted offer from the seller and the seller's agent, that's when you, it's really imperative to start the questioning process, as Niall said before, and Deborah, because you have to, you know, kind of step aside from the 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 inspection that we don't have at a, as a luxury, and and take it upon ourselves to say, okay, so there are window treatments, okay, so there are in 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 window air conditioners, there are chandeliers, there's track lighting, you know, there's carpeting in some cases, you know, what gets to stay and what doesn't, because what ends up happening oftentimes is at, you know, the walkthrough, which is usually an hour or an hour and a half before the closing, you walk in with the buyer, they flip out because something they thought was staying there is no longer there. And now we're all arriving at the closing table. Who's angry, who's pissed off and who doesn't understand you know, the right from the left, and you have a major, major issue. So, you know, the, the message here is to make sure that we do our work up front as broker and identify as best we can what is in that apartment, what stays, and what stays goes in the contract of sale or it doesn't. Let's talk about pre-war, post-war, or new construction, you know, major differences in housing stock. When referring to pre-war, Post-war and new construction buildings, there are many more differences than just the date of construction. There are major distinctions in style, design, amenities, and building management. Choosing which is the right one, uh, you, right one for you will have everything to do with your specific style and what details of a home are most important to you. During the process of buying, you will identify fairly quickly what features of a home you consider most important. So... Guys, when you're out there with buyers, and this pertains mostly to buyers as you're educating them and taking them around town looking for a new home or a new place to live, how often do people even bring up the fact that they understand pre-war, post-war, new construction, or are they very adamant and say, I want new construction or I want pre-war? What's the general consensus out there? Because they're they're completely different, as I just identified, very different housing uh, stock. If I'm working with investors, they're pretty sure of what they want. Other people, they're a little bit sure, but many times 
I will throw in something that they're not looking for just to test them to see if they like it. Most people will say, I must have pre-war. And then I might throw in a 1960s building or a new construction if it fits every other criteria just to say, okay, you're standing here. How does it feel with something like this work? Many times it won't. But again, they're the ones who are going to live there. Yeah, and it's an education process at the end of the day. So, you know, I don't think, I think you're right on the investment standpoint. If you're working with investors, condos, for, for sure, that's very important. But if you're dealing with somebody who's going to live in this apartment as a primary residence, it, it's important not to show them exactly what they want, but just to toss in one or two, um, you know, kind of pepper in, I like to say, one or two off ideas, a new construction year, 1960s, post-war, a pre-war and then let them get a feel for it so that they know at the end of the day they're making a, the right purchasing decision. Uh, I, I agree. And again, you know, I, I, in my experience, just like, you know, the rest of you, I have buyers who specifically want specific types. And just like Deborah said, sometimes, you know, in the beginning, you don't really know what they want and they don't necessarily know what they want. So you'll throw in a couple of options. But by the end of that first day of showing, maybe a day and a half of showing, you get a better idea or a better sense of, what they would prefer by just their, you know, their reactions, their body language, whatever. What do you need to know before you buy in a post-war building? I mean, we're just going to pick on a post-war building now, and then, you know, we'll talk about the others somewhere down the road. But somewhere between the old world glamour of pre-war apartments and the glossy allure of the new condo, you'll find the overlooked every man of New York real estate, the post-war apartment, sometimes retro, often very plain. These places are among the city's most affordable and plentiful housing options. Built in the 50s and 60s, for example, if you're planning to buy, chances are a post-war or two will show up on your list of options, even if you're not specifically looking for one. And these places come with their own set of pros, cons, like anything else. All right, guys, you know, what, what is the allure of a post-war building, or is there an allure? Uh, Vince, this is my sweet spot. These are my favorite kind of buildings. I'll tell you why, and I'll keep it short. First of all, when we're talking post-war, we have to specify it's post-World War II. I've had a number of people in their 20s and 30s thinking it's post-Vietnam War or post-something else. So it is post-World War II, tend to be the 1950s, 1960s. I love these buildings because, for many reasons that people don't like them, they're large, they're boxy, they're plain vanilla, they're nothing to write home about. But that I find as wonderful because you make it your own. You put in your own charm. It has more square footage than a pre-war or a many of the shiny new condos in the same price range. It has more closets. It has storage. It has newer amenities in the basement as these buildings try to keep up with the new construction. So it's kind of like a hidden secret. And I've seen many, many of these 1950s, 1960s apartments that when you walk in, the owners have turned them into something that you can't tell what era it's from. They either look like the building was just built yesterday or it's old world glamour. So I love them. They do provide exactly what you stated, Deborah. You know, they're larger mm-hmm. closet space. You know, the drawbacks sometimes are the lower ceilings, but the room sizes are big. Closets are enormous. And for the most part, the living space is um, fairly generous. And in the research I was doing, you know, post-war goes back to, you know, everything built from 1945 right up until the 2000s because we can consider these, you know, somewhere down the road, people are going to consider these new construction buildings as post-war because, again, pre-war is, you know, pre-World War II and everything since, you know, falls under the post-war category. 
Um, you know, is there are there any construction issues with these buildings, or are we okay? Well, there are for a number of reasons. First, the age. They were built over 50 years ago, and everything tends to fall apart a little bit after 50 years. Right. Most people are concerned about what we call Local Law 11, which not every broker really understands. Local Law 11 is, is every three to five years, every building in the city must be examined to make sure the grout, the masonry, everything is in working order. But it's about every 30 years that the whole building has to be repointed, have all these things have to be reassessed. And that could run into hundreds of thousands of dollars up to, depending on the size of the building, up to over a million. And that could be a big assessment down the line. All right, guys, we have to stop right there. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Uh, Until next time, thank you for joining me. I look forward to being with you on our next show Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on the Variety Channel here on Voice America. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Until I see you next time, have a great week. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.